All right, gang. Uh, warm up sesh. Let's get let's get the riff juices flowing. I'm gonna spit. I'm gonna spit ten interesting animal facts at you, and let's just let's just get our minds just a little little okay. little mental calisthenics. Um, based on our friends in the animal kingdom, uh, this is us. I mean, these are these are called from seventy five animal facts that will change the way you view the animal kingdom at bestlifeonline.com. All right, first animal fact. Uh, so you let me know if you if you've already heard this fact and just your general thoughts. Uh, koala fingerprints are so close to humans that they could taint crime scenes. What are they getting wow. away with? What, I mean, that's I think true. We, <laughs> we don't know how many crimes they're, they've committed. I mean, are people getting away with murders in Australia just because there's been a bunch of koalas like near the scene of the crime? They're like, I'll tell you what, I wish we could uh, narrow it down, but it seems like the, uh, the victim was uh, stabbed by 11 individuals at the same time. I mean, Australia like seems like one of those countries where it's like, getting a murder charge is like a traffic ticket in America where it's like, no, like just contest it. Like chances are no one's going to show up and you, you can just kill that guy. I mean, and also like how many, how many homicides in Australia are just someone who stepped on a spider that was so venomous that it kills you instantly. Cause there's a lot of that shit down there. It is funny that they decided to like keep living there. Like whoever, like whoever sent them there, like died a long time ago and there it's like well you could probably go back somewhere else you don't have to live in this place that was literally like a punishment for you and they're like no yeah i mean <laughs> no, we're gonna to keep this going sure i mean like the 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 wildfires are getting insane and it's like 130 degrees in the summer but like i mean it's got to be better than like england i don't i mean i don't know i mean there's Maybe. way way fewer animals that can kill you in england yeah they like they they, they destroyed so all of them <laughs> yeah, there's there's so few that they're like they have to like lie about badgers being dangerous. To humans. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, Why are they crazy? They're crazed beasts. We have to kill all of them. Why are they so obsessed with killing badgers over there? There's literally like you have to fight like an anti badger lobby. It's like they have APAC and then like the APAC for killing badgers. So they're like well, we we have uh, that they, with they, wolves in this country. Uh, that's very true. Cannot stop trying to kill wolves. They're like, uh, can we maybe increase the number of wolves I get to murder in a year, please? Uh, just get back to this amazing koala fact, though. I mean, would there be a way to engineer like the perfect murder, but one involving koalas? Is there a way yeah. you, you use koalas to like uh, to engineer like a perfect murder? If you could well, somehow combine a, a koala and an icicle knife, you would indeed have <laughs> the absolutely perfect murder. <laughs> All right. Uh, next amazing animal fact. The world's oldest known breed of domesticated dog dates back to 329 B.C. I see. I would have thought it would have been a little like, I thought it would have been earlier than that. Yeah, me too. I mean, they probably were. There probably were ones earlier. It's just like if a dog that like, OK, if someone domesticated a dog like 10,000 years B.C., the only things left from 10,000 years B.C. are, like, stuff they made in China, like vases and shit. I saw it in some museum in Chicago, or Minneapolis, actually. And you wouldn't, like, people weren't yet, like, as sentimental about pets, probably. So you would maybe, like, write down, like, here's how you, like, uh, trick a dog into fucking a woman or whatever. <laughs> and it's like, okay, if you have like a piece of paper over 12,000 years, it's probably not going to last. And I mean, if you have a dead dog, like most people, like everyone's had it with, they've had a few dead dogs in the place they've lived. If they've lived there long enough. It's just a cinder, you know, that gets pulled away. Uh, can you guess? But we the probably did domesticate them like 
a long time ago. Yeah, or, I, I would have thought yeah. like you know human human evolution and dog evolution are like very closely intertwined. So I would have thought like basically dogs have been pseudo domesticated since like you know early like Neolithic times, since like the the wolves started uh, getting closer and closer to the fire and human settlements, et cetera, et cetera. The ones that chose to stay and receive scraps ate more regularly than the ones who hunted. And the ones who stayed in a couple, you know, not evolutionary speaking, like a very, very t short amount of time, uh, became different than wolves. Can you guess, though, what the, what the oldest species of uh, domesticated dog is, according to the Guinness Book of World Records? It's a labradoodle. <laughs> <laughs> the first one. Uh, no, it, it is, yeah, it is, a, it is an a, Anatolian shepherd. No, it is actually a dog that I know, Felix, you're a fan of. It is the Saluki. Oh, those are sick. The Salukis were revered in ancient Egypt and kept as royal pets, being mummified after death. Also, no. The fuck's a Saluki? It's a very, very like kind of a thin-looking uh, sort of. Uh, it look, they look like Ann Coulter. They're like smaller than Borzois, but have like a similar look where they're very sharp. Ah, I was dating. I was dating a girl once who was like, she was like, like pretty like tall and and thin. Ann Coulter. And we were talking. Yeah, I was dating Ann Coulter. You met you met we on the like, set of Real Time. Yeah, yeah, I was I was the guy that passes Bill a joint that he could smoke <laughs> on air, and we were like talking about like what we would be if we were animals. And I was like trying to compliment her, and I was like, "We'd well, be like a borzoi because you're very like striking and beautiful." And she was like, "What the fuck? What the fuck is this type of talk?" <laughs> she like hated it. She was like, Felix. "I look nothing like that." Fuck Felix. you. Women love being compared to dogs. I know that for a fact. <laughs> okay, well, she, she, okay, she compared me to like a gorilla or a bear. That's and cool. It's like, I think those are beautiful animals. Well, okay, yeah, but like, are beautiful. it's just uh, calling a woman a dog has certain okay. connotations. She's a dog. You know, even if you think it's I a beautiful she'd dog, be the most gorgeous Vietnamese <laughs> potbelly pig in the village. I don't understand. <laughs> um, no, I think we we like we're actually talking about like what type of dog we would be, and it's like it made. I thought I was being complimentary. But whatever. Okay. Well, I mean, that, that's that's a poison shell. This is one of these tests that woman, women give you, you know, and they ask yeah. you on the first date. If I if I could be, if you if 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 I were a type of dog, what kind of dog you think I would be? That's a trick question. Don't answer it. If you are a woman, ages, you know, uh, twenty four to seventy five, and you understand that the boar is always a beautiful dog, please contact me. Um, at Bertovo on Twitter. <laughs> um, it, does, it, does, it does say also that there are carvings found in Sumer in present-day southern Iraq, which represent a dog closely resembling the Saluki, which date back to 7,000 B.C. Okay, so... Yeah, there you go. There you there go. You that's, go. That's all we, the, I, I mean, that's like, okay, the thing where you, like, meet a wolf, there is a sense of, like, yeah, no, we've been doing this forever. Yeah, absolutely. Like, uh, yeah. I mean, I think... I think we did a ton of stupid bullshit. Like, we probably made Labradoodles, like, 20,000 years ago. There's just, like, no documentation that survived. <laughs> no one carved it into stone. Yeah. Right, that, well, I mean, yeah, no one, no one, like, knew how to write shit. That, like, if you, if you could write shit down, you were, like, you were, like, a screenwriter. Like, you made the equivalent of, like, 300,000, like, stones that would be exchanged for grains uh, a, a year. And, like... It's true. You, you got you, to not fucking have to farm. It was good. Yeah. Uh, and it's like it's like and Chaucer we're just gonna say Chaucer was like the red fox of writing where it's like oh why hasn't anyone <laughs> ever like done it like this this is you a know, cool way to do it where people can like understand it you know, Felix I mean once again I don't know if it's by accident or not but 
uh, Chaucer was the red fox of writing because yeah, he was the first one to put to, <laughs> that I'm aware of who put who put body uh, bodiness in in writing. Yeah. yeah, he was all about getting sloppy top literary yeah. style. Yeah, yeah the wife he, of Bath, her head game is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Thou must washeth thine ass. Um, yeah, he he like he made writing in a way where like more people could understand it and more people started learning how to read inspired by Chaucer. But before that, you know, you could really like, you had to go to school to be able to write because you had to mostly like do it on tablets. And then even after that, like you had to be really good at scrolls and obviously the printing press helped, but Chaucer really like, you know, he put it into high gear. It's like how there was television for a while before there was Red Fox and there were records and shit. <laughs> there was someone had to like take to the form to make it I believe more, Chaucer predated the, the printing press. Uh, we invented printing presses 20,000 years ago. And he had a <laughs> secret one. Okay. He found, he found the one from uh, Atlantis. Uh, to be sure, though, I mean, if I was in the ancient Sumerian commune, my job, cuneiform guy. I w- yeah, I would. I, I would, would be. I would write. That. I would write porn- pornographic stories in cuneiform. I would write uh, elite daily articles <laughs> in cuneiform. Right, like um, these are the seven habits that the fire priests have that you want to have in your job as the guy who rakes the ground, hoping not to starve to death. <laughs> All right. Uh, this next animal fact is uh, very very similar to the uh, last one I just shared with you. The oldest evidence of domesticated cats dates back 9,500 years. And now this one is more surprising to me because I, you know, I, I think like, you know, sort of uh, human evolution and dog evolution has been very entwined and human evolution has been going a lot longer than human civilization has. And I think human civilization is, is around where we can, you know, when people started having domesticated cats because with civilization you have division of labor and a pet doesn't necessarily need to provide a utility to to your survival in order to uh, for you to feed it and invest time in it. I mean, obviously, cats uh, have have a primary function, which is pest control. But ninety five hundred years ago—that's a long time for the people have had cats. And I wonder though, how did cat species become cats? Because with dogs, it, like it, it, it's 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 easy to understand as I just laid out how that happened. But like cats, I mean, like. Were there just smaller species of wild cats that did the same thing that dogs did and just sort of habituated themselves to humans? But the other interesting thing about domesticated cats is that I don't think that they're actually technically domesticated in that an, no, adult, yeah, dom- an adult house cat does not have a juvenile state of development, which even all adult domesticated dogs do. Meaning, as I've said before, I think, that if Marty had another 60 pounds or so, he would kill me. <laughs> like He would, he would yeah, definitely absolutely. kill be me. Dead. I mean, kill your ass. have you ever heard that like pop science thing that like I think probably isn't true because like how would you know this? But it's like one of the hypotheses is, is that like cats, their meow is mimicking like how baby primates would sound. Oh, like what? Like yeah, I mean I don't know. Yeah, it's I mean, like I know that's, yeah, no, it's, I mean it could yeah. be true. It sounds sounds real. I don't know. Sounds like one of those. Well, why not believe cats. it? Yeah, yeah, you know what? It doesn't make a difference. It, Just choose to believe it. It does not matter yeah. at all. So it's and, true. And, and the thinking is that they like they did that because it was like okay if we're like if we like endear ourselves to people it's we have shelter and food but the cat yeah the cat thing is interesting for that reason because there is like there's something beyond pest control and I was thinking about uh, primates and like chimps and orangutans and all sorts of apes 
can develop affinities for other animals that we've seen. Like we've seen those uh, gibbons who get fascinated by tapers and stuff like that. And maybe that's, maybe that's just a primate quality that we have. I mean, some animals do have appreciation for other animals, but no one's quite as curious as the primates are. And maybe that's just a unique part of our, our family's identity. I also think there's, uh, the, the, the cats might be fascinated uh, by us and our uh, love of murder. And yeah. they might find that sort of like, hey, these guys like murdering things too. Let's hang out and watch the murder things, and we can murder things together. There's a reverse of this. You know all those sables that I watch? Yeah. All the sable accounts? They, sables are incredibly smart. I didn't know that. They're very, they can remember how to do tasks like opening, using, jumping on a door handle to like open a door. They can remember that for like years. Like velociraptors. They're, yeah, they're super clever. They like they need enrichment or they go crazy. Kind of very similar to primates. Like they need puzzles and shit. Super intelligent. One of the sables I follow, his mom has cats and she mostly keeps them away because Uma the sable loves the cats. She adores them. She's obsessed with them. And I think it's because they have like similar movement patterns and the same thing of being like predators. The cats fucking hate Uma. Poor Uma loves them, but oh, the no. cats are like, "I hate you, fuck off." <laughs> poor, well, poor girl. Uh, another, another uh, sort of like uh, added layer here. Um, the sable's most, uh, you know, the, the the most animosity from sable to another animal has got to be dogs. Sables, I would imagine, hate dogs because dogs are the only way you can hunt sables in the wild. Well, this is an interesting nature versus nurture thing, like. A lot of animals do have, like, received memories through genetics or whatever of hating other animals. But Uma, who, you know, lived the first, like, two mo- two or three months of her life on a fur farm outside of the wild, and then was, what these people do is they buy sables from fur farms and then plan to release them in the wild, but they can't always go back because they'll lose their fear of people or they have an injury or something. And so they, they keep them as pets, um... She also really loves the dogs. And the dogs, like, the dog, who you'd figure would, like, freak out at her, like, plays really gently with her. It's really, it's really amazing. I mean, it does show, I'm always interested in, like, what depth and what awareness of the world animals have. Because, you know, we've all had animals communicate with us whether we choose to see it that way or not. And there's, you know, with more advanced animals, you, you, there's that video I love of the gorilla who's hugging the, the ranger who's protecting his habit or her habitat from poachers, like seemingly aware of what's going on a little bit. And these animals, even though their instinct would tell them like the sables, your enemy or the dogs, your enemy, because they're raised in this environment where there's not really like competition for food or to eat each other or whatever they get along. And the dog even like, meters his behavior so as not to like kill the sable and the sable doesn't the sables are really sharp and fast she doesn't try to like rip his throat out and uh, that there's more my point is that i think animals have more awareness of their the realities of their world and their immediate surroundings and kind of who they are than we give them credit for a lot of the time all right, uh, content warning, traumatic material for Felix here. Content warning for the uh, Werner Herzog documentary, Happy People. Oh, about, yeah, I've never watched About that. fur trappers and the Siberian taiga. Uh, yeah, there is a scene where a dog hunts and kills a sable. 
So avoid that movie, Felix. All right. Uh, no, no. I, I I love his his films, but yeah, no, I'm not watching that. All right. Uh, uh, two more. I, I know too much about him now. Two more quick animal facts, and then let's get in for the, the news of the week. Uh, puffins use twigs to scratch their bodies. So a little bit of like uh, interesting tool use by an animal that you wouldn't uh, necessarily, you know, doesn't have uh, uh, digits of any kind. But it That's uses a damn a, bird. It's uh, just takes the twigs in its beak and it scratches itself like, uh, you know, like uh, sometimes we all like need Al to do. Like Al Bundy. Uh, just birds, are, birds are great. Like uh, The puffin is one of my favorite birds. When I was a kid, I would always go to the Central Park Zoo and in the Penguin House, I would always love to see the puffins. I think they're very cool. I love the contrast between the, the black and white body. I like their, the sort of whiskers they have and I love the, the, the contrast between their black and white tuxedo body and uh, their beautiful uh, orange and yellow beaks. They're they beautiful. taste good, too. I've, I've actually <laughs> eaten <laughs> Really? Have Not you really? Kidding. Yeah, I have. little puffin slider I had one time. <laughs> Where? Where? In Iceland. Oh, of course. Of oh, okay. course. Yeah, Iceland right. makes yeah. sense. Yeah. I mean, that's the cool thing about birds is, like, some of them can, like, master tool usage and, like, have, like, literally an ability to communicate with humans and, like, understand human emotions in a way that, like, parrots and stuff do. And then some are, like, don't remember something that happened to them a minute ago. And there's, like, not a lot of, like, physical difference between those two. It's like you, you just have to talk to them to see if they're the smart bird or the dumb bird. I've got a. Oh wait, I have. I have uh, one more thing on domesticated cats. Uh, I'd like to suggest um, uh, an explanation for their domestication using um, occult knowledge instead of uh, you know standard mainstream science. I think cats habituated themselves to people because cats serve as a repository for the souls of the dead, and I think that's how they acclimated themselves to human beings is because each of them contain. Um, a part of the soul of a dead person or many souls of several dead people. That's, that's my belief about cats. Like, if you ever find a cat just, like, in the corner of your house just staring at a wall or, like, looking up at something that isn't there, um, it's probably communicating with the dead. Your house is probably haunted. All right, I'll accept that. I think that's, like, that's just as good an explanation as any. Um, okay, uh, last animal fact. <laughs> this is a funny one. Bottlenose dolphins are even more right-handed than humans. How does that work, you say? It says uh, most humans, about 70 to 90% are right-handed. About 5 to 30%, it's estimated, are left-handed. And the same holds true for bottlenose and dolphins. In fact, the savvy swimmers are even more right-handed than we are. A team by the Florida Dolphin Communication Project. Is that a John Lilly offshoot? I don't know. <laughs> offshoot. The Florida Dolphin Communication Project took a look at the feeding behavior of bottlenose dolphins and found that the animals were turning to their left side 99.44% of the time, which actually, actually suggests a right-side bias, according to IFL Science. It places the dolphin's right side and right eye close to the ocean floor as it hunts. So um, uh, dolphins, once again, superior to us in every respect. If you could only get rid of yeah. these left-handed people that are dragging down our species, maybe we could solve some of our problems. This is an endorsement of everything dolphins do and how they behave. <laughs> everything. This is an endorsement of the, the life and career of John Lilly, one of the finest scientists of the 20th century. <laughs> He was the only guy was, to really tr try to hold dolphins accountable. He by was torturing trying to them. save us. <laughs> he was trying to get the, the the dolphins to talk to the aliens, which we need someone to have that conversation. The dolphins seem like a perfectly good candidate. 
I have it better than any of us. I'd give that job to octopus. Yeah. The octopuses don't live long enough is the thing. They're smart, but they live like a year. They don't have enough time to, to, to like, to, to, to do anything with it. They just kind of float around and then explode. That's a pretty fucked up life to be, like, highly intelligent. And then it's like, all right, it's been a few weeks. Time to blow up. <laughs> that sucks. Well, uh, Felix, you said, you said John Lilly was the first one working to hold dolphins accountable. It's actually quite the opposite is true. He would uh, enable his dolphins in his, like, sort of uh, Caribbean... Uh, he, had a, he had a lab in the Caribbean that was like a James Bond villain vase where the entire first floor was flooded so dolphins and humans could like co-mingle and interact. And he would enable the Me Too behavior of these dolphins. And I have it on good authority from an author I used to work with that John Lilly would, um, and again, this is all funded by the CIA, John Lilly would arrange assignations between his dolphins and well-known Hollywood celebrities, actresses. So... Hmm. All right. I, I think hell of a blind item. The reason dolphins need accountability, actually, it's not a good guy. Um, I'm re- I'm reading about octopus lifespans. The longest living one lives five years. <laughs> that's insane. <laughs> yeah, that's... That sucks. <laughs> but you that know what? I mean, sucks. like everything's a matter of perspective, though. Exactly. I mean, yeah, five yeah, years feels for longer for them, especially since they don't have like the internet. They're just floating around in water. That probably that's that, not that true. Time probably stretches out. That's not true. Sometimes they get in jars. <laughs> yeah, they get jarred up. They like they change their they color. T- they pretend to be a rock. They're they're loving it. They're having a great time. Yeah, no, they're having a good time. But it's like there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of empty time that they can just fill. So who knows how long that five years feels? If you're I a get it. octopus. <laughs> If you're an dolphin, you can apply for Social Security on your third birthday. <laughs> Very generous of them, though. All right, so that, that, was, uh, that was five. Uh, I mean, we went long on this one. I thought I was going to do ten, but there's just too much to talk about when it comes to our, the, the souls the, the, that we share this planet with. The animal kingdom is truly wonderful. Thank God we're it getting is. rid of it. It's really too <laughs> annoying having all these yeah, animals to remember. That was the, uh, I think, the longest cold open we've ever done on the show. But uh, let's let's start it off. It's Monday. It's Chapo. Let's go. It's me, Matt, and Felix. Yeah, we're we're excited this week. Um, we, uh, you know, the Dexter reboot is it's looming upon us. We Very excited. Well, well, I hate to use this as a segue, but uh, speaking of Dexter, <laughs> horrible building collapse in Miami. <laughs> Uh, sorry. <laughs> That's a hell of a move there. Oh my god! Put sick Dexter on the uh, the owners of that condo. I would say, yeah, the American Grenfell happened in Miami. Yeah, no, it's yeah. Uh, it's 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 horrible. Uh, probably 150 people dead. Um, uh, not not much to say about this one. Other than you know, if uh, thoughts and prayers, if you believe in such a thing, for the. Uh, survivors or actually there are no survivors but the, for the families and the people working to in the uh, rescue ability in the rescue effort rather um i just which is one thing from the story though that stuck out of me in the new york times is it said that um 
While Floridians and viewers around the world were stunned by the suddenness of the collapse, there were warnings as early as 2018 of major structural damage that need to be, needed to be addressed, according to emails between a contractor and the condo's board. In those emails, which the city of Surfside has begun releasing, the engineer urged the board to repair cracked columns and crumbling concrete and estimated it would cost about $9 million. As of, as of the collapse on Thursday, that work had not been done, but the board had taken out a loan of about $12 million to do the work. And I'll just say, like, on this regard, like, I mean, morality aside here, I mean, like, this does seem to be a sort of a microcosm of, uh, you know, like, the, the way our economy and country works. Like, we've talked about this before, like, like the morality or the intentional incompetence or malice of the people on uh, the condos who didn't do the work aside just probably because you know they wanted to save money or they couldn't make a profit if they did it i mean the the input of individual human actors you can take it out of the equation but like in all circumstances if there is a choice to be made between spending money that's necessary to ensure the uh, health life and safety of human beings and not doing that and making money then you know which one is going to win out. And like I said, like, this is not a moral condemnation of the people involved, although you can certainly make that as well if you like. I'm just thinking more around like, the sort of algorithmic inputs of the way our society and economy functions make it necessary for things like allowing the cracked foundation of a condo to continue um, and eventually collapse in the middle of the night and kill probably 150 people. Yeah, there's there's no other uh, input. I mean, the system literally does not have a a uh, a pricing mechanism for like uh, human life, for example, uh, and so it doesn't get brought into the equation. And there's no coordinated human uh, organized organization to push for that. And so uh, that's it's going to just keep happening. I mean, it's it's pretty much endemic among all just on in terms of housing uh, everything that's been put up in like the last 30 years are are fucking lego houses yeah I they're mean, not meant to last yeah they're not yeah. meant to last because it costs money like you can sell out a, a condo by putting it together with like the fucking spun sugar and beet root that the fucking dozers used in fraggle rock and <laughs> make more money than if you used durable materials and that's the only thing that matters and so that is what you will decide decide as though you made it, you had any choice in the matter to do. And I think that part of the reason everyone's freaking out and, and, and our rich people are turning into just these psychopaths is because they're trying to uh, make sense of a world where they're at the top of it, and yet they still don't get to make any choices. Nobody gets to make any decisions. The decisions are all made by the algorithm, and then we just live with them. And our culture uh, is organized around justifying the results of them, like it's a fucking volcano god, and we have to explain why it's okay that it like burned down a village. Yeah, and I think I think we're going to see a lot of this happen over the rest of our lifetimes. Um because I mean, a city like Miami that had like a huge construction boom in the Still 80s is. from Yeah. They have a, they have a huge from, construction boom going on right now. Yeah, and I mean the one in the 80s um a lot of that was like cocaine money laundering, a lot of it was related just to the rise of the credit more credit-based economy of the 80s that we have now and like it sort of coincides with you know how we always talk about like the the futility of being the mayor of a large american city yeah yeah because it's like on autopilot 
you just have to keep making these shitty buildings so like there's some sort of economic function <clears throat> it doesn't really matter if they're bad or are going to collapse in 40 years or not or even collapse in 10 years um it just how it's going to keep going and i think unfortunately with this one with this constantly happening i think there's a real possibility we have to look at that you know, it'll be like it'll be like uh, how people talk about how Sandy Hook was a definitive moment for gun control. It'll yeah. just be like another thing that people accept about American life. Yeah, I mean, and look, when I, when I say like morality aside, I don't mean to exonerate the, the the people who own this condo, this you know condominium and, and corporation in, in in South Florida, because you know, <laughs> real estate developers in South Florida. I mean, come on, take take you you can read into that quite a lot, but. I mean, the other thing I'll say is, like, in terms of short-term thinking and, like, in part of all of this, how insane is it that anyone is building anything in Miami right now <laughs> other crazy. than a fucking yeah. giant No one, a, no a, one's a thinking about dam. this. I mean, they're still, they're buying, they're building, like, a huge fucking, like, skyscraper, like, you know, glittering, gigantic residential towers right on the fucking beach in Miami right now. And forget uh, sea level rise, just the, just the, the, uh, the rising water table is literally eating the, the foundations of these how these buildings like fucking termites. They're already being they're all all of them are having their essential uh, integrity being breached by the fact that the water is just everywhere. The salt water and the salt air is everywhere, and the the, the construction materials are cheaper than they've ever been and, and more slapdash. Yeah, I mean, and like to, to that end, I guess like uh, just just wrap this up by saying like. It's just in in every respect, like in every whether it's whether it's buildings or politics or like just anything in our culture, we seem sort of categorically unable to ever make the choice to spend a lot of money now to save even more money ten or twenty years down the line. It is always always about quarter by quarter. Are are you turning an ever increasing rate of profit? Are you continuing yeah. to make money? There like there's no. I mean, imagine, think about what it's going to cost them in like civil or criminal action for not <laughs> spending that $9 million to fix this fucking condo. Well, there's always, there's always in capitalism that, that maximalist drive towards the short term that defines it. That, that, but it's always, usually, uh, it's, it's balanced by, you know, the fact that these institutions are op being operated by humans. And in a, in the context of a human's uh, social structure, and it, it is those human institutions and that human investment in them that militates against that and says, "Hey, maybe we pull some aside for a rainy day. Maybe we address this thing, even though it's not profitable in the in the near term." Uh, but that that element truly is a luxury that we sort of got used to. Once you reach a point of like a crisis of profitability, which has been going on in capitalism for the last 40 years and has only gotten worse in the last 20, you can't afford it. Yeah. There, if you're if you're in the if you're in the, these machines, which are not accountable to any uh, like democratic intervention, because all of those mechanisms have rotted away. Uh, the only way to keep the lights on is to think in the most short term way possible. Mm -hmm. And so. There, there. Unless you actually, uh, you know, change the algorithm, and that will require human intervention, yeah. uh, then all you will get is accelerating short-termism until you are doing things that will, that not just are going to cause a disaster 
like in the imagined future, you know are going to destroy things like a year from now, but you still have to do them. Because I mean, they're like, the only way to keep the system going as it currently exists. I mean, our healthcare system is a perfect example of this. I mean, we, we know that it, it costs more for uh, it costs, like the American taxpayer and uh, like this general deficit to our society at large. It costs way more money than the trillions it would cost to uh, have a, a public health insurance system. Our electricity and transportation infrastructure, uh, that's going to take trillions of dollars so that they can be functional within the next 10 or 20 years. And it's just, it's not going to get done. I, I just, I, I don't see anything on the horizon for the reasons that we've discussed. So I think we're just going to like, I don't know, we have to, I'm not saying resign ourselves to it, but just be aware that like the, the bill is coming due on the last like 30, 40 years of this kind of like slapdash, quick profit thinking on, on the things like that we take for granted about having a roof over our heads or like electricity. Like look at what happened in Texas with that cold snap, having heat. Um, just having uh, roads or the ability to uh, use uh, like a, a rail system to move large amounts of people in and out of cities where they have to work. I mean, it just go down the list here. It's just like for these things to be viable in another like 10, 20, 30 years is going to take trillions and trillions of dollars in public money being spent and invested to, uh, to upgrade them and make them safe and uh, more efficient. And it's just, I mean, I don't know. I mean, like, I know there's this big infrastructure, the big infrastructure, bipartisan infrastructure bill they're working on now. I, I, I hope it will do something to ameliorate the, uh, the coming bridge, tunnel, and building collapses that are, uh, seem to be populating our future. Yeah, and um, I have felt the desire, uh, but mostly had to resist the urge to make fun of the struggles of California and Texas too much, despite them being, like, maybe my two least favorite states. Because th this stuff is going to happen to all of us everywhere oh, in yeah. America. It's coming for all of us. Even, even the lucky Minnesotans, it's going to happen to you in some form. <laughs> well, I mean, my God, the fucking Pacific Northwest has 115 degree temperatures for the first time ever. Like that, that it's there now, but it's going to be somewhere else in the next month and somewhere else next summer. I mean, it's, it, is, it is just going to be rolling and, and uh compacting catastrophes it's 108 degrees in spokane today yeah was normal, normal. <laughs> Well, uh, before I start talking about uh, the temperature recorded in the Arctic last week and uh, really going in down that K-hole, let's, let, let's pull back for a second and talk, let's talk some funny and hot political goss that's, that's uh, burbling up to the fore. Um, so it's been like, you know, uh, it's been about six months now. So like all the books about the last days of like the, the, the downfall bunker era of the Trump administration are, have been written and they're all coming out and they're being um, excerpted in various, uh, various outlets. So I want to I dig into two of them today. Uh, the first one is an excerpt from the book. Frankly, we did win this election. The inside story of how Trump lost, which is a great title for a book. Um, and, and both of these articles are, are very sort of like insidery accounts. Uh, many of their sources are all the deeply compromised people, uh, all, all the rats fleeing or clinging to the SS Trump as it circled the drain. So take, take, make of that what you will. 
uh, they, they seem to uh, uh, confirm a portrait of the Trump White House and the people within it that will not come as a shock to listeners of this show, but there are some fairly funny details in there that I think is worth sharing. So uh, the, first one, the first one reads, uh, headline here, this is from Business Insider, uh, Trump frequently mocked Rudy Giuliani, calling him pathetic and said he sucked, new book says. <laughs> <laughs> now this is this is coming on the heels of uh rudy giuliani losing his license to practice law because of everything he did on behalf of trump and then rudy's people are are, are now like they're making a sort of counterclaim they're demanding that trump pay his legal fees and i will give you any odds that that will not happen if you i'll give you a million to one bet that Trump will never, ever part with a dime to help Rudy Giuliani, despite the fact that, you know, he's lost, he's lost his legal license and could be facing, I don't know, is he facing criminal penalty for the shit he did? I don't I know. Mean, he, I don't think any of those guys are going to jail. Bygones be bygones. Well, I mean, but, look, he's, he's facing, uh, he's going to lose possible. a lot of money. He's going to lose possible. a lot of money in civil action. If, it's if, possible. If anyone could find a way, like, because we just like really mostly don't send these guys to prison. Uh, yeah. Like people like Duke Cunningham, like you're, it's an IQ test. Duke Cunningham right. is in a rarefied company of like federal, <laughs> federal, federal level or national level figures who like got sent to prison. James and, Traficant. Like, yeah. Rudy is like, it's one of those special cases because do you remember when he like, there was that month where he kept like butt dialing reporters and the stuff they heard on the other end was like, all right, how are we going to get more money from the legal money from the United Arab Emirates? We need some more fucking money. <laughs> it's like he just like he was on TV that one time during the impeachment proceedings when he was like, oh, don't worry. I have blackmail on Donald Trump in case he's <laughs> mean to me. <laughs> it's like it's like he's been trying. It's like he's been trying to get away from Andrew, Andrew Giuliani. <laughs> he's been trying to go to prison. Um, it says here, according to the book, Trump told Giuliani he sucked and was weak after Giuliani defended him on TV amid fallout over the publication of the Access Hollywood tape. So, I mean, like, this isn't just because he was, like, you know, farting and bleeding on TV. This goes back, like, all the way to 2008. Giuliani has been suffering Trump's abuse and apparently loving it the entire time. Uh, it says here, um, despite President Trump's mo despite Trump's mockery, Giuliani was determined to remain close to the president, the book says. Rudy never wanted to feel left out, one aide told Bender, according to the mail. If you were ever between Rudy and the president, look out. You were going to get trampled. Still, there were times when Trump defended Giuliani, the book says. At one point, the president's aides started complaining about how Giuliani's frequent television appearances were creating a public relations headache for the White House press shop. But Trump barked that at least Giuliani was out there fighting for him, Bender's book says. Everyone shut up after that. <laughs> See, that's all he needs. You just need one of those, and it makes up for a million uh, owns. That, that, that's, that's the beauty of an abusive relationship. You just need you just need to be nice once or twice, yeah. and then they'll they'll be with you just as you just wrecking their shit the rest of the time. Uh, Giuliani was fighting for him, like in the way that Edward Nor Norton, you know, fought for somebody when he was kicking his own ass in the office in Fight Club. I am Jack's smirking revenge. <laughs> <laughs> it's the exact same thing. Well, the, what Giuliani uh, was doing on TV. Uh, the, the the portrait that 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 emerges of Giuliani though is that I don't think he took Trump's abuse too seriously, and I think Giuliani's like old mindset is that 
as long as Trump is abusing me and insulting me and degrading me, then I'm in his inner circle and I have his attention, which is the most important yeah. currency that these people are really after. So that like dealing with his abuse is just like that's that's your ticket to the big dance. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's I mean, like the Trump. I remember the like the framing of this and like for people who are obsessed with impeachment and shit like that in uh during the trump administration was oh it's a it's a crime syndicate it's a good like and i guess in like a very loose definition yeah sure but i mean even the most slapdash fucking syndicate whether it's like the mafia thing or whatever is more organized than what the trump thing was which is just like a bunch of losers like jockeying for this old man's attention so he would like pardon their friend or like let them like lease a bridge <laughs> there was no like organized process to it it was just like who can like who can like wave their hands in front of him the longest i, I mean that portrait will emerge in the in, in the second excerpt i'm going to get to but just uh, real quick to finish this one up it says on thursday a new york court suspended giuliani from practicing law in the state after finding uncontroverted evidence that he communicated demonstrably false and misleading statements to courts lawmakers and the public at large about the 2020 election results. Nonpartisan election experts and cybersecurity professionals found that contrary to Giuliani's and Trump's claims of malfeasance, the 2020 election was the safest and most secure in U.S. history. The former New York mayor appeared on the conservative network Newsmax hours after the ruling came down and said he was not very happy about the suspension. All I can say is America is not America any longer, Giuliani added. We do not live in a free state. We live in a state that is controlled by the Democrat Party. And, you know, I'm sure he was upset about um, his was his home and office getting raided by the feds. But I find this and I think we've mentioned this before, but I find this all just a, a, a delicious irony here. And this is happening to Giuliani, the guy who made his bones using the federal RICO acts to fucking demolish the, the New York City, um, the five families, the Italian mafia in New York City. Queens, Brooklyn, Manhattan, Staten Island, the Bronx. Mm. And that's a fist. Where it's like, you'd think that this guy would know better than anyone that it doesn't take much, but if you get pushed to that other side of the line of which you're like uh, a no longer wanted or you become a, a problem for the federal government, they can do whatever they fucking want to you with the legal system. And it's designed that way. So, Rudy, if you're just finding out we don't live in a free country now, welcome to the fucking party. It'll Your be okay, though, because his... His horse-mouthed son is going to be governor of the state, and he's going to—he's uh, going to pardon him. I, I, we, I, we, I, the Andrew Giuliani campaign bears close watching. I would like to get press credentials for uh, his run for governor. We should do that. I have next never year. seen anyone move their mouth that widely. To <laughs> it's like he's doing—he's like. Remember when uh, uh, Michael Winslow, the uh, the the wacky talking guy from a police academy would pretend to be bruce lee being uh like yeah 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 voiceover yeah. and like he move his mouth really big that's how andrew giuliani always talks you know, but he look, always but... sounds like he is doing a joke about being dumb as you may have heard recently uh, a few few minutes ago my father's law license was suspended by the new york state first appellate division of the supreme court now the five judges that ruled on it all five of them are Democrats, three of which 
were appointed by Andrew Cuomo. Five to nothing, ultimately. Democrats with zero Republicans on there. Again, this is just unbelievable to see just how politicized all of this has become. You're right. It's, <laughs> it's like a it's like a dubbed movie, but the yeah. but the but but like the words and his mouth movements sync up, which make it even stranger and more uncanny. Very weird. I just want to put a <laughs> carrot in his mouth every time I see him talk. <laughs> Give him a nice salt lick and some fresh hay. Yeah, he's gonna he's gonna pardon his dad. Make he's gonna appoint his dad governor, and then he's gonna step down. <laughs> Some have. You like, know what? I think that's like all these guys' strategies now is that they do like as much flagrantly unethical and illegal shit that they can while they're in power. And then if they lose it or they're like the wolves are banging at the door, then they're just like, Oh, I'm just going to get my, I'm going to get my fail son into office and he's going to pardon me. He's going to yeah. call it's off a, the dogs. It's a, it's a mirror of the design of the American city where you just have to keep building shitty buildings forever. <laughs> yeah. As long as we keep having sons and like, <laughs> <laughs> we could do this forever. Well, I do. I, I I do like Andrew because he's like. Um, I mean, with Don Jun Don Junior, just like there's too much like noticeable sadness in his soul yeah. when he tries to like do the dumb shit his dad does. But Andrew is like easily has like the same type of stupidity that Rudy has, and there's this like Labrador like vacancy in him whenever you see him doing anything, any doing any campaign shit. You're right. Like he's a, he's got some. I don't know. He's got some, uh, some oomph to him that Don Jr. doesn't have. You're right. Like Don Jr. Yeah. When he imitates his dad, there's a profound melancholy there that you can't escape. Yeah, because yeah, you can yeah. see the, you can see the need. You can see that he's trying to get this approval from his dad. He never will. Whereas with Andrew, he, gosh darn it, he's just having a good time out there. Look at him. Look at him out there. And and you know what? Like I, I I'm just speculating here, but like we all know the story about how. <laughs> <laughs> when Trump slapped Don Jr. in the face for not wearing a suit to the Yankee game. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you know what? Yeah. When, I, when, I, like, when, I, when, when Andrew Giuliani like, uh, does a campaign announcement, and he's like, I, I, the, we, uh, the, the, the Democrats in this state are, are, are waging war against my father. And I, I, I will stand to protect him. I think, like, when he gets home, like, uh, Rudy Giuliani puts a very sweaty hand on his back and goes, you did good, son. I love you. Yeah. Yeah, no, they have, like, I think they, like, do activities together. They, like, go to horrible cigar lounges. Oh, and, God, like, yeah, yeah. You know, wa wander around dog tracks. Like, <laughs> whatever you would imagine those guys would do. It's like... Like, you... <laughs> like go, to, go to rug stores just to haggle and not buy anything. Yeah, I'm just imagining uh, Andrew, he's a loyal, dutiful son that he is, will often take it upon himself to, to, to mop down his dad's flop sweat. Just sort of dab, dab his brow with an extra absorbent bounty or something. I would say the difference between like Don Jr. and Andrew Giuliani is that like if Don Jr. knows nothing else, it's that he's not his father. Whereas Andrew, it's very possible he does not know that. Well, he doesn't look anything like his dad. It's quite uh, he odd. Looks nothing he looks like absolutely him, yeah. nothing like his father. He looks like Jake Busey. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who needs a knife in a nuke fight anyway? Yeah, like Rudy is very like sort of. Um, he's always looked like his the gravity is really taking its toll on his face. It's like very Salvador Dali. Like everything's melting down. <laughs> yeah, like, and, yeah, and, yeah. Andrew, Andrew's like a very ruddy. Uh, 
a perky set of clay. Uh, <laughs> Salvador Dali. That is, that is what Rudy's face is like. It's like, uh, yeah, the persistence of memory. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah, persistence and, of embarrassment. That's <laughs> yeah. And, and Andrew is just like, he has one of those, like, you know, big, like, Irish heads. He's got totally a big like, Irish potato like. head. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's from the, the, from the mom's side. It's got to be. But, yeah, I've, I've never seen a father and son look less alike than those two. They other, look other than nothing of course, alike. <laughs> Ronan Farrow and Woody Allen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there's an explanation for that. Um, okay. Uh, next excerpt. This, this is this is a long one. This is an excerpt from uh, Michael Wolf's new book called Landslide. That's uh, printed in uh, New York Magazine. Now, Michael Wolf. I don't know if you guys remember him. He's this very like kind of smarmy, fish-faced. Uh, oh yeah, DC. that guy for the fight, the Fire and Fury book. God yes, damn it! Yes, yeah. Long time Jesus. like New York. Well, before that, he was like a notorious like just New York media like Remora. the type of guy Donald Trump would call. The yeah, God. no, absolutely. I'm just yeah. having yeah. I'm just having a flashback to when that book was like a huge deal, and now it's like, oh yeah, I remember that book, and it, and uh, like fuck, it's just. Yeah, the the speed of everything just hit me. Like, god damn. What was like, that I, book about? That, was that was that about the Obama administration? Or? No, that was no, about, was the, about like the first six months of the Trump administration. Oh, okay, it was all okay. just like leaks of people talking about how like he farted during a meeting or something and blamed <laughs> it on the Joint Chiefs of Staff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was yeah. That that was like that book was it detailed a lot of like Bannon drama and shit. He, um, but yeah, before that, Michael Wolf was like, yeah, I remember him as like sort of an early modern Twitter figure because he would like in like 2013 or so he would make a post. It's like, oh, uh, millennials are mad because they can't get a reservation at Waverly Inn. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. who's the, who the fuck's the audience for this? I mean, he's he, like, yeah, he's a guy who would hang out with Lou Pearlsman. That's absolutely. I mean, yeah, he's he's this New York media like hagfish, basically. But you know what? Like, he, like Trump and those people around him definitely talk to this guy. So like, he, he knows how oh, to, yeah. he knows how to fucking cultivate sources. So there's there's some very funny stuff in uh, this new excerpt. So uh, getting into that, uh, okay, I'm just gonna be, start at the beginning. This is a very long article, so I'm I don't have time to get into all of it. But there's let's just let's just go through it. Seems like quite a few crazies, said the president. A little more than three weeks before rioters and revelers stormed the Capitol on January 6th, several thousand Trump fans and fanatics gathered in Washington, D.C. There were the Proud Boys in elaborate dress, ZZ Top beards, and tie-dyed kilts. Enrique Tarrio, a Proud Boy organizer, got in line and took a public tour of the White House, who seemed to have appointed themselves Trump's protectors and vanguard, as the Hells Angels had once done for the Rolling Stones. Uh, Tarrio, he, he is the guy who was like a fed, right? Yes, he yeah, he was yeah, the he was the Fed informant. he was the Fed informant who was like arrested on an unrelated charge like the day before the Capitol riot took place. So they were just like, oh, we'll just you, now that you've instigated this whole thing, let's just just sort of pluck you out of this pot and put you <laughs> yeah. elsewhere. So when it goes down, you'll be uh, free from legal ramification. So I, I did like that he took it upon himself to take a, take a guided tour of the White House, though. That's nice. I mean, you know, that's what you do when you're in D.C. It's a fun tourist thing to do. Have either of you guys ever uh, done a tour of the White House? No, never. Matt? I've got I've uh, done the Senate, I've Senate and House, but not the White House. 
uh, just just the basement where they keep the kids. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, going on here, it says, uh, it's like, let's make a deal, said Trump the next day to a caller, referencing the long-running game show from the 1960s. This is the day after the riot. Uh, many of his references never left this psychic era, one which audience members dressed up in foolish costumes to get the attention of the host. <laughs> I love that detail because it's so accurate that all of his pop cultural references are stuck in that era. Like he's just like, like many, many old people do, or many people past a certain age, but Trump especially, it's very specific, and once again, very queeny, like era, like he just loved Paul Lind and Charles Nelson Riley on the fucking match game <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, he usually like he'll have some allusions to modern things, like the Kristen Stewart thing, but just like not the actual movies, just like the gossip. Yeah, his, he loves his, the goss. Yeah, the, his actual references to like movies and stuff. The farthest they can possibly go is about 1985. Yeah, they're remaking Ghostbusters with a female cast. <laughs> uh, she goes here. Uh, the speakers at the December 12th event were themselves a uh, retinue of former Trump attention seekers. Michael Flynn, the former generally who had briefly served as Trump's national security advisor before being rolled out of office for lying to the FBI, had, after pleading guilty, reversed himself and abjectly reaffirmed his Trump loyalty, finally getting his pardon just days before the rally. Sebastian Gorka, a figure of uncertain provenance. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> a figure of uncertain provenance. Because that's, again, that's totally true. I mean, like, yeah, dude, no. I, I, very early, like, successful bit for us on the show. Much all credit to James Adomian. But, we're, yeah, like, Gorka just came out of nowhere. I never, like, it just, just one day, he's just this bellowing guy who's just talking about. <laughs> the alpha males are back in charge now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He really, he came out of the ether. And it's like, I, if anyone, I think that like one of us would have recognized him. But no, we had never seen him this guy before. No, and you, I mean, you know, you know, my fucking like, my, my, my mind palace is the library is just filled with fucking obscure media figures that I yeah. find funny I or, or repellent. They, I think they filled out a lot of the spots in that early administration from subreddits. That's so the only You yeah. might not have heard of some of these people before that. How would they have thought to like get him? I don't Like, where would you have seen him? I, I mean, mean, did he, he work swag, on the campaign? That's for sure. I don't know. Yeah, but, um, he was. I think he was one of those national security advisors or something. Yeah, yeah, that's it. So, I mean, I don't know if you guys remember this, but like, basically, everybody who in the '60s would have like uh, cut out a, 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 a classified ad in Soldier of Fortune and tried to fly to Rhodesia ended up in the White House. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah no, that's exact. That's exactly it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> like, do you remember? Like, do you remember how like the like his doc, like his doctor was just like a pill head that he knew. Yeah. <laughs> He's dead. He died, by the way. R.I.P. To a legend. No, no, no. A different guy, Ronnie Jackson. Oh, the guy. The, that was the yeah. But he wasn't just his doctor. He was he was a meta. He was a, uh, a a army doctor. Yeah, no, that's yeah. He had like a. It's pretty like he had a whole position. career, and then like as soon as Trump showed up, he's like, "Yeah, he actually uh, he weighs 125 pounds." <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, no, no, uh, yeah, he, he has, he has eight percent body fat. His he official, has, uh, you put this out, Matt. under ninety. His the official body weight on like the Navy physician who has to do this officially for the president. The, the weight he was given on the physical that was released to the public. I think you pointed this out, Matt. Was like five pounds shy. Uh, it was for his like height a, it was of, like of, one or two. It was. As high as it could be without technically being obese. 
Yeah, yeah, according to BMI. And then and then he got rewarded. They wanted to make him Surgeon General, and then he immediately got busted for like driving his car into the side of the White House to try to just like offering uh, interns pills. Yeah, <laughs> like he had he a was... totally normal career, and then Trump shows up, and it's just like the the beast is unwi- uh, awoken within him. <laughs> yeah. That was yeah, that was. Awesome. That yeah, was an awesome Trump uh, sorry, cycle. I'm just having a like flashback to the early era of the Trump administration in Gorka. This was like Chapo Mark One. But do you remember the bit about how so like Gorka is brought on as like in part of the national security staff or whatever? But he couldn't get a security clearance because he still had a like a charge for trying to bring a gun on an airplane. Yep. So yes, yes. Yep. he had no security clearance to do his job, which is like all the job actually entails. So there were accounts of like, and he was in the White House for like six months before getting just hanging around. And no, he was just hanging around. It was said that he would he would spend all day in the White House cafeteria watching things on TV that he would get mad at or tell the president about. He was just watching. And he would Fox pop into meetings yeah. about like soil uh, irrigation and just talk about, well, when Napoleon was in Egypt. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. What a fucking guy. Um, all right, going on here. Uh, a figure of uncertain providence and function in the Trump White House during its first months was one of the early oddballs to be pushed out when John Kelly became chief of staff and had pursued a Trump-based media career ever since. Also speaking, my pillow entrepreneur Mike Lindell, a former drug addict and current fevered conspiracy theorist. Four people were stabbed and 33 arrested, most in the several-hour melee that that took place after sundown. This was, in hindsight, a run-through. But it was also a pretty good insight into Trump's relationship to his army of supporters. The president often expressed puzzlement over who these people were with their low-rent trailer camp bearing and their, quote, get-ups, once joking that he should have invested in a chain of tattoo parlors and shaking his head about the great unwashed... I mean, I mean, this confirms uh, uh, much of our observations about Trump is that there, nobody hates MAGA people more than Trump himself. Yeah. I mean, he, he kisses their ass and like, you know, he, play, he plays to them because he knows like that's that's his sweet spot. But like uh, Trump wants to see he wants to look out over a sea of like at one of his huge rallies with like 50,000 people. And he wants to see them all in like evening, uh, evening, like fine dining evening attire. And he wants to see a crowd that's mostly made up of like CEOs, celebrities, athletes, people of that caliber, not the, not, not the guys dressing in the tri-corner hats and, 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 and looking goofy. Um, it continues here. The fan base had always been peculiar to him. For most politicians, Vox Populi is a pretty remote concept, one brought home only with polling, press, and elections. Trump's regular and during some periods nearly constant performances at stadium rallies gave him a greater direct route and connection to his base than any politician in the modern television age. It was adulation on par with that of a pop star, a massive pop star. Quote, the only man without a guitar who can fill a stadium, he is likely to say about himself and in another of his 1960s stuck references. Star- yeah, that's <laughs> not true at all. Like, <laughs> Kevin Hart could do that. Yeah, Kevin Hart did MSG. Yeah. Um, probably like, and also like, probably like, uh, sort of like charismatic mega pastors and like, like Tony Robbins, Joel Olstein, people like that, motivational speaker guys. <clears throat> um, and also like, you know, a lot of musicians today, they don't even play guitars. They just... They, that's true. <laughs> they, the, the, the rap style musicians. Yeah, um, they're, not, they're not as cool as... Freddie Mercury, who played an instrument. 
Uh, by dawn on January 6th, the crowd of the great un- unwashed was building with the various organizers of the various events, each pulling in larger than expected numbers. From the perspective of the White House, the protest was still just background noise, a tailgate party before the main event. Vice President Mike Pence counting, and they hoped rejecting, the electors representing the final tally of the November vote that would begin at 1 p.m. The remaining group of aides around the president that morning in the White House was down to Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, Eric Hirschman, one of Trump's on-call lawyers, and Dan Scavino, his social media alter ego, with Jason Miller, Justin Clark, Alex Cannon, and Tim Murtaugh, the last employees from the campaign, either working from home or, in the case of Clark, heading into the Republican National Committee. All of them had woken with, the same close, with close, something close to the same thought. How is it going to play when the vice president fails to make the move the president is counting on him to make? And make no mistake, each fully understood Mike Pence was not going to make that move. Just as relevant, none of the seven men had precisely told the president this. They, along with almost everyone else in the White House, as well as those who had slipped out, just wanted this to be over. Did did these guys, like, I mean, like, again, morality aside, like, from their perspective, is it just not worth it to explain this to Trump? Is that yeah. it's just not worth talking about short term thinking? What keeps you in the room? Like, but what, what the problem of, of next week can be solved next week. You don't want to cause problems for yourself now. Yeah, by but telling like, him something he doesn't want to hear. Yeah, but next week these guys would be out of a job. Like, was this just to stay in the room for another forty eight hours? Yeah. Okay. Yes. That's, That's it. Psycho. That we're, we're, we're staring down the barrel of ab- apocalyptic destruction that is cl- obviously the result of what we keep doing, but we keep doing it that because there's no alternative, because it's the only thing that we know and it's the only comfort we have. And for these guys, being in the room with Trump is the only thing that matters. And making the effort to say something that's going to get you kicked out of there, because what's the benefit of that? It's like you're going to be out of a job anyway. Wait, wouldn't you want it to go down with the ship and be a loyal soldier? Yeah, yeah. If you go down as a loyal soldier, there's some life after you or after this where you can, like, you know, maybe get a show on Newsmax or OAN. You can, there's like enough payoff after that. If you like go against it, it's like how many fucking guys have like made a big show about going against it? The last one is this guy, Miles Taylor, Miles, Miles, uh, from Sonic, uh, Miles T. Prowler, uh, who like, it's like you can only have so many Evan McMullins, right? Yeah. There's only so much. I mean, that was a lucrative thing at the start, but it's like, talk about media oversaturation. The principled guys who went up against Trump, there's probably like, there's probably more guaranteed payoff uh, for going down as a loyal soldier, right? And even and, and, and even if you're not thinking that far ahead, you're thinking of what's happening to you in that very moment. And in that very moment, you don't want to get yelled at. You don't yeah, want to get no, called guess, a loser. And yeah. and I think I think that like a lot of the time, like I think grifter is like one of those very overused words which just like now just means someone you don't like. Yeah. Because I think like, you know, these guys kind of do have like a like like a carnival barker thing about them but a lot of them do actually like believe in this stuff and do like believe in trump and there's some part of them that's like okay this is fucked now but he's like he's definitely gonna win next time for some reason so i have to like keep on his good side all right there's a there's there's a great detail in this next paragraph 
this was not an uncommon feeling in the final days of the Trump presidency. There was the world within shouting distance of the Oval Office, privy to the president's monologues, his catalog of resentments, agitation, desires, long-held notions, stray information, and sudden inspirations with little practical relationship to the workings of government. And then there was the more normal world beyond that. Early in Trump's presidency, aides noted that a second-floor office where the likes of Stephen Miller and Kev Kellyanne Conway worked meant a degree of exclusion but also protection. Trump would never climb the stairs, and by the end of his term, he never had. What an amazing physical specimen. <laughs> the, the, the smart ones, Kellyanne Conway and Stephen Miller, uh, not, not co at all coincidentally, the two people who lasted the entire four years of Trump's White House, which is like had a turnover rate higher than fucking, I don't know, <laughs> substitute teacher or whatever. Um, yeah, they, they were protected from his, from his whims by a staircase because he... <laughs> He literally couldn't, he couldn't yell. He, they couldn't hear him if he was yelling and that he would not. Okay, here's a good question. Remember there's that thing where like Trump uh, had trouble walking down that ramp on the campaign trail and everyone made fun of him. When's the last time you think Trump walked up a flight of stairs? Just one floor from like the first floor to the second floor of a building. It's been <sighs> decades, I would imagine. Like, I would, he would say, take the elevator every time. I would say maybe like 2004. Interesting. Yeah, I just I can't see him doing it after that. But I think that was the last year where it's like, okay, I, I think I can take this one on. <laughs> and then it's like every year that you don't do it, it becomes more difficult to the point where you're just like, all right, I'm done with that part of my life. I mean, stairs we... were a big part of my childhood. <laughs> they're not a big part. They're not a big part of my adult life. You know, when when one grows up, one must put away childish things. Including like st stairs. stairs. <laughs> yeah. You know, we've speculated before that Trump is going to live like another 20, 30 years, probably. He's probably going to croak at like 101 or something. Um, but I think like the, the only thing that could, you know, fuck that up is a staircase. Like, I think like all, all, yeah. all of, all of, the, all of the, the, the sort of the HP that he channels to keep his life going will be negated. They'll get buffed by a single staircase and then he'll just collapse dead immediately. Yeah, I like... I mean, his everyone made fun of that thing where he was like, the human body has a finite amount of energy and it's bad for you to work out. But it's like, that's true for him. I think at this point, that's definitely true. And I think like, how much does he move around a day? He probably like, if you put like a Fitbit on him or something, it, you'd record what, like 40 steps? Maybe. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Felix, they, they, should, they should get Trump a Fitbit that just counts steps overall. Like, it doesn't reset yeah. at the end of the day. And he has, realistically, 10,000 steps left in his life. And it's yeah. like a countdown clock to when he's going to die. <laughs> so oh, but that's over, yeah, that's 10,000 over 40 years, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Like, he's going to find a way to go under budget on but, that. Yeah, but if he easily. averages six or eight a day, then he's <laughs> yeah. fine. He's fine. Yeah. Okay, think about it. Like, wakes up, like, gets, like, you know, goes to the bathroom and, like, you know, I don't know how he, like, pisses or shits like there's probably like he probably like there's a pellet of piss that comes out of his body like a long thin <laughs> pellet like the graphite and the mechanical pencil and it just like comes out it's just oh, like, like solid God. it looks like it looks like you put you 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 like it, it looks like um a popsicle of gravy that he just pulls out. god damn it and he gets done he like does all his like beauty shit and then he like puts his face goes, on 
Yeah, it puts his face on. He goes to like goes to like where he like eats his meals and like signs birthday cards for like racist plastic surgeons. And that's like what? That's like probably twenty steps, maybe. Yeah. And then it's like you could put maybe ten more in for the rest of the day. That's thirty times three hundred sixty-five. Yeah. No, I mean he's gonna have to bring the daily steps down from like you know, 40 to 20 to live another 40 years. But I think he can do it. Yeah, I believe in him. Yeah. All right, continuing. To the, degree, the, to the degree that Trump had for four years been running the government with scant idea of the rules and practices of running the government, he was now doing it virtually without anybody who did have some idea and desire to protect both him and themselves from embarrassment or legal peril. Jared Kushner was to his own great relief in the Middle East wrapping up what he saw as the historic, his historic mission, his peace deals. <laughs> Just, I, I, love, I love the way that's shaken out. But uh, moving on, because the president had all but banished the White House counsel, Pat, uh, Pat Cipollone, who was grateful to be banished, and was speaking instead to Hirschman. Hirschman, believing he understood how to move the president, tended to offer objections that sounded awfully like the plaudits of a yes-man. Kaylee McEnany had been strategically missing in action for several weeks. The remaining campaign officials, Jason Miller, Clark Cannon, tended to be merely on the receiving end of Trump's calls and opinions. And everybody else was effectively cleared out. White House WAGs noted that Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin had fled as far as Sudan, where he was negotiating a good behavior economic pact with the former terrorism-sponsored nation to get his distance from the last election grasp. Th- that is... <laughs> Mnuchin <laughs> fucked off to Sudan. He went to Sudan to avoid having anything to do with this shit. I love it. He's like, yeah, what a soldier Steve was. He, he was, he was the verbal kent of the administration. Yeah. He, he was Kaiser Soze walking off in this, in, into the sunset. Into the Sudan sunset. Yeah. yeah. With Louise Linton at his side, partner in crime, Bonnie and Clyde. Well, she was probably making me you madness while he was yeah. in Sudan. <laughs> yeah. Um, the one person Trump did have at his side, Rudy Giuliani, was drinking heavily and in a constant state of excitation, often almost incoherent in his agitation and mania. <laughs> That's funny. Like, Rudy never struck me uh, as a drinker. He always came across as something of a teetotaler to me. But, I mean, I guess, I guess that explains his, 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 free, his, his, his sweatiness as of late. It's just the, got, mean, got the booze sweats that he's dabbing his brow constantly to sop up that Jameson or whatever. It's easy to get confused because that world has so many guys who are like, I've, I've never, I've never touched a drop of alcohol. And it's like, they just don't drink like maybe due to a medical reason or whatever. Uh, like guys who have committed like literally hundreds of sexual assaults who are like, I did, I don't have vices, but they <laughs> think that's true because they don't drink. And like, it's easy to get it conflated, but like Rudy, I mean, I think one of the only ways you can get that face is by, like, being a binge drinker. Yeah. Um, Almost everyone who remained around the president understood that he, along with Giuliani, did in fact actually believe there was yet a decent chance of upsetting the electoral count and having Trump declared the Electoral College winner, or failing that, prolonging the election and returning the fight to the disputed states. The president's aides and family understood, too, that there was the that he was the only one, along with Giuliani, which made the situation more alarming in any professional political sphere to believe this. Hence, they did not call it such and tried to see it as a more 
more nuanced, as more nuanced, quote, derangement. <laughs> so the, the more nuanced understanding is that Trump has lost his fucking marvels. <laughs> uh, there had been hardly a waking hour in the past 48 during which he and Giuliani had not been on the phone in pent-up nervousness and excitement over the coming battle in Congress on January 6th. There were two general, they were two generals poring over a map of the battlefield. Both men egged on by hypotheticals ever nearer to fantasy and after exhausting all other options had come to take it as an article of faith that the vice president could simply reject Biden electors in favor of Trump ones and thereby hand the election to Trump or failing, falling short of that, the vice president could determine that a state legislature ought to give further consideration to possible discrepancies in the state's vote and send it back to the question electors for a reconsideration of their certification. There's no question, none at all, that the VP can do this. That's a fact. The Constitution gives him the authority not to certify. It goes back to the state legislature, said Giuliani, as though on a loop. He kept repeating this to the president and to the others who are part of a continual conversation on the cell phone. Yes, yes, yes. Here's the thing. Hold on a second. Hey, let me get back to you. The president, in his own loop, kept similarly repeating this back to Giuliani, and they both similarly repeated this to everyone else with such an insistent determination that it overrode any opportunity to disagree with them or even engage in conversation. Throughout, they continued to weigh the odds that the vice president would come along, sometimes 50-50, sometimes as much as 60-40, and even somewhat more. At the grimmest, 30-70, but always a solid shot. Now, this goes back to the thing we were talking about earlier about like why these people even though knowing full well that there was no chance that he was going to, you know, pull this off, continued to flatter him just to be in the room with him for another two minutes. This question about Pence, and they're all, they're all like doing, they're all like doing odds for themselves on if he's going to come through or not. I understand the president and the vice president, like in any administration are not that close and they don't spend that much time together. But is there any reason Trump couldn't have just asked Mike Pence what he was planning to do on January 6th so that it didn't come as a surprise to him? And I think the answer to that, I mean, there, there, maybe there's other reasons or you could speculate about, but I think the answer for that is that he knew full well himself that there was no chance of this. And the true believers around yeah. him knew in the back yeah. of their mind the exact same thing. And they just didn't want, they, they avoided actually asking the one person they were laying odds on his behavior because, I mean, he's the vice president. It's, it's like his job to respond to questions from the president about what he will or won't do is uh, they just didn't seek to confirm it because they did. They wanted to keep this fantasy going for themselves. And um, I mean, like, it could also be like you don't want you don't want Pence to like testify that you personally asked that or whatever. But like, I mean, I, I think with this whole thing, like I, I do like as trashy as it is, I do like these accounts because um the Hitler comparisons are so overwrought and stupid for so many reasons, but like this is so downfall. But if Hitler was like, okay, like after all the fantasies dispelled, like you go kill yourself, <laughs> I'm gonna go back to Florida, you kill yourself, bye, like just without the self sacrifice of Hitler, <laughs> like all right, all right, I guess, I guess it's done, I guess we lost. I'm going to go, I'm going to go, you know, make 40 steps a day for the next 40 years of my life and you're in trouble. Hey, I tried my best. Tough shit. <laughs> like, it's, it is great. Yeah, he just left everyone to do all this shit. And, like, when he goes, like, when he's telling Giuliani, I'll get back to you, what do you think he was getting back to? Like, what do you think was cutting in between the, the call? Like, either, like, just some bullshit, like, hey, like, I, 
I gave $250,000 to your inauguration or a PAC supporting you. Can you, like, send a postcard to my 170-year-old aunt? Yeah, sure. Or, like, just literally probably just scrolling. Uh, There's a lot in this article. It goes through, like, basically an hour-by-hour account of what was going on in the White House on January 6th. But I'm just going to jump ahead now to this part. Uh, This is after, like, this is as shit was going down in the Capitol and, like, in, in real time, and they were all wondering what to do. Uh, It says here, the debate about putting the president out there to say something, something calming, continued for as much as an hour. There were three views, that he must, as fast as possible, say something. It was getting serious, though no one yet was seeing this as the defining moment of his presidency. His own view was that he should say nothing. It was not his fault or responsibility, and he certainly didn't want to give a speech that might imply it was. And lastly, that anything he said, instead of helping to address the problem, might well make matters much worse, as it did when he was forced to make a speech condemning the racist protesters in Charlottesville. Aides put in front of the president two suggested tweets written in Trump's voice, which they hoped he might accept. The first one reads, Bad apples, like Antifa or other crazed leftists, infiltrated today's peaceful protest over the fraudulent vote count. Violence is never acceptable. MAGA supporters embrace our police and the rule of law and should leave the Capitol now. Second tweet that was suggested. The fake news media who encouraged this summer's violent and radical riots are now trying to blame peaceful and innocent MAGA protesters for violent actions. This isn't who we are. Our people should head home and let the criminals suffer the consequences. <laughs> Trump, <laughs> Trump either rejected them or ignored them. Other than Dan Scavino, Trump didn't like anyone else writing his tweets. I mean... I'm surprised he even let Scavino do it. I mean, the man's a true poster. And I got to say, once again, (laughs) phrase for the day, morality aside, Trump's instincts about not doing anything were, from his perspective, the correct one. I mean, it it got him this far. No, yeah, his instincts, usually pretty dead on. Well, because, like, what these people are bred to think is cover your ass, uh, you have to say something so that that you will not you will not be remembered poorly in history but that's just nerd shit that's just another way for the fucking hall monitors to uh to spook you if you really don't if the only way to truly be free and to operate as a political uh wild card and and to benefit from it the way trump did is if you just do not give a shit what they have to say and the second you start caring is the second that you're broken which is why a guy like ted cruz will never fill the shoes. I mean, remember when he was in, uh, he, he, he fled the, the cold snap in Texas to go to fucking Mexico. <laughs> and then as soon as they found him, he just came back immediately. And yeah, said and, that and he and was just going that, there like, to drop oh, I was, his I was escorting, off. I was escorting my daughters there. Like I'm fucking Liam Neeson and taken or something. <laughs> and I was going to come back anyway. And it's like, you only, he did that because a bunch of people were in his ear saying, Oh, you gotta, you gotta, do uh you got to do control on this and those people are always the people you should listen to least because they're totally captured by this thing that all these people are convinced is what moves the needle but if you're a guy like Trump and you're not beholden to the media narratives to to push you as as a personality you can and should completely fucking ignore yeah a calm shot person is always going to want you to make more comms yeah exactly yeah, you do just your like own how you, how you, how you, yeah. You, you just don't how need you, these people. 
just how, just how you know if you ask a building developer how to run a city, guess what he's going to say? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, I'm I'm skipping ahead to the end of the article here because it contains a a lovely and charming portrait of the home life of my good friend Jason Miller. So <laughs> let's just dive into here. It says Jason Miller at home in Arlington was lying stupefied in bed with his wife, watching video loops of the day over and over again and hoping there was a plan. I mean, that's nice. That's nice, isn't it? You know, just lying in bed with your wife that you love so much. I mean, good for him. I would never cheat on her doing no, anything I mean, to make her feel bad. He's, he's, like, that's in the past. He's, he's a better yeah. man now. He's learned a lot. And like I said, he's grown. He's grown, and I wish him all the best in the future. Yeah, no. Um, Many culinary treats. But no one called. At 9 p.m., he got out of bed, opened his laptop, and started to write a statement. A statement, the considered language of politics, the true Mandarin's language, was an indication of ongoing business. This meant doing what Trump had refused for the past 64 days to do, acknowledge that Joe Biden would inevitably be the next president. There was not going to be an abject or contrite Trump or even a formally defeated one. It was necessary to skip over the fairness of the election and to skip over the Trump-told narrative. The election, in his mind, would, retain stolen, would remain stolen, forever stolen. This statement could certainly not be the official belated concession, at least not to Trump, but it had to establish acceptance, a fait accompli, and put Trump's stamp on the new, if disagreeable, reality. Miller was trying to get the headline, the cry and roll, the message from Trump that something had changed. Orderly transition. Not exactly the torch passing and hardly a round of applause for democracy in action. That was as far as the president could be moved. He called Kushner and read him the draft. Will you call the president? Kushner smoothly pushed Miller into the fray. <laughs> Miller called Meadows, still in the white West Wing, and then the president. The president seemed eager to hear from Miller, eager to be on the phone. Most often for Trump, the phone was a one-way instrument. Callers listened. How bad is this, Trump asked. A stark difference from his usual opener. How are we doing? which was not ordinarily a question at all, but a preface to Trump saying how well everything was going. That's a great little detail about Trump that I, that I find very telling. It's just, how's it going? And then you, you open your mouth to start saying how you're going. And that's great. So anyway, let me tell you, things are wonderful here. They're going fantastic. <laughs> We're doing better than anyone's ever done before. Mr. President, today is literally going to change everything. This looks terrible. This is really bad. Who are these people? These aren't our people. These idiots with these outfits, they look like Democrats. Hold on. Our great first lady is here. And Trump switching said Trump switching to speakerphone. <laughs> so I don't want to say I, I feel sympathy for Jason Miller. But just like uh, think about him in this situation where you're the last man standing and it falls on you to have to craft a statement that is the first ever concession to reality. And you're calling Trump about it. And he's like, hold on, I've got a great first lady on the line. Could you just, oh, I'm putting you on speaker right now. Melania wants to say something to you. She says here, Jason said the for great first lady with a sharp note. The media is trying to go and say, this is who we are. We don't support this. That's what we have to make clear, said Miller, relieved that the president and the first lady were seeing the protesters as bad guys rather than good guys and not a mix of the two. Pushing through, Miller told the president and first lady that, that he had just gotten off the phone with Kushner and Meadows and that they had a proposal for later, for later that evening if Biden reached an electoral majority. 
He went into reading the statement draft. The president suggested peaceful transition instead of orderly. Miller said that that called attention to the fact that it wasn't peaceful now and might not be peaceful. Orderly, Miller did not say, suggested not just an absence of disruption, but that all the aspects of government would pass as they should to a new administration. Peaceful put it in someone else's hand. Orderly meant cooperation, too. The Trump White House would cooperate with the incoming Biden White House. It wasn't just the protesters who needed to stop. Trump needed to extend himself, too. After all, it wasn't just that the recount effort and the election challenge behind the protests, but Trump's personal intransigence. Trump seemed to appreciate this now, to walk back even. The media thinks I'm not going to leave, said the president. Do they really think that? That's crazy. <laughs> 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 it's crazy how did how did how did so many people get this idea and it, it's just and this is all hinging all of it on this idea that mike pence would just come through and just be like yes the constitution gives me the authority to make donald trump president and he'd been saying i mean they don't uh, just I don't, I don't know. I mean, maybe he wasn't saying it, but like literally everyone who supported him in the media was saying exactly that. Yeah. Hey, and maybe he would have. And then that would have been great. And then he didn't. Hey, what are you going to do? Yeah. I'll, 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 I'll be at Mar-a-Lago if you need me. Uh, jumping ahead here, it says, this is over, Miller thought. This is the end of the road. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to refrain, refrain from commenting further on the end of Jason Miller's road. Um, <laughs> of all the news outlets, only Fox had never gotten back to him. Even Fox, Miller accepted, was truly over Trump. Scavino could not use only his personal Twitter account to finally, at 3.49 a.m., get out the president's statement. I forgot that. They got, a, they got out Trump's tweet at 4 in the morning. Yeah, That's yeah, how, that was yeah, awesome. That fucking rules. They're like, it's sort of like, you know, if if you're up late, it's like four or five o'clock in the morning on Twitter. Time zones aside, you're like, mm, can I get away with this retweet? It's pretty spicy. And then you're like, yeah, no one's up. Who cares? <laughs> uh, so it goes here. Uh, if this was an attempted putsch, it had not only failed, but shown its leader to be almost a random participant in it without method or strategy. Disorder had always been his element, and now it was his followers, too. But he was not so much with them as alone in his own rebellion and desires, a bubble of grievance that somehow floated apart from the actual events, even events that were meant to make real the president's own delusions. So that's the end there, and I, 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 like, the, um, I like the bit at the end where, there were, where he says... If this was a, you know, a, a putsch, it had failed, but it was one in which it was a putsch in which the president was not was just sort of an observer and not a participant. And, you know, like, I mean, like, that's not to, again, I, I think that may be soft selling Trump's role in this to a certain degree. But it does just I mean, like he said all this shit on TV, believing Christ knows what, and then watch the outcome of it on TV like everyone else did seemingly as baffled as everyone else was as to what was going on or why it was happening. That was how he governed for four years, so it makes sense that that's how he would have treated that moment. I mean, that was his whole thing of being president, was just watching himself be president. So why would he ever change that? I mean, he, he, he never grasped the idea that he was supposed to actually be doing anything because he's never done anything. His entire career before that, was just you go into a room and you shake a guy's hand and you say you're very excited and then that's it. Something happens elsewhere. Like you don't actually do anything. 
Like people are behind your back using your brand to launder money, but they're not, you're not actually involved in any of that. Yeah, so I th- uh, both of those are uh, f- fairly fairly telling uh, recountings of the yes the downfall bunker last days of the Trump administration, which you know once again um, does comport to all of our previous observations about um, his conduct vis a vis the January six riot. So I don't know any any final thoughts on this. We went long today. Too many interesting animal facts to discuss. <laughs> I can't wait for him to come back. Yeah, no. It'll be really fun when he runs again. And I, I don't see who would uh, who would beat him for the nomination. Well, the, the, th- the thing they're talking about now is that the Republicans win the midterms. Like, would they say that they could make him Speaker of the House? They could. He would never do that. That's an actual yeah, job. Yeah, that is, like, a little too much for him. Like, all the actual governing happens in the legislative branch now. And, and, and there is obviously a lot of governing going on in the executive branch, but the president doesn't really have to have anything to do with it, as we now are pretty fucking painfully aware uh but like secret of the house is one of those jobs where you've got to actually go to meetings and actually make deals and and preside over votes it's it's all and then it you're still not the main person you're still not the person who's on tv all the and time. uh so i can't imagine him wanting to do it the thing that he did enjoy about being president was that like you can just issue an executive order uh, that's like kind of bullshit. That's like, you know, today's we're calling today heroes day or something like he loved doing that. And if you're speaker yeah, of the house, no you, handsome... you, you have to like pass a bill, like, you know, honoring, uh, Paul Lind. And that's like, that's too much yeah. work. <laughs> There's no handsome hamburger quarterback part. No. Yeah. No. At the speaker. Of the house. It's just not for him. That's just not his type of thing. No. That's like, that's one of those things for people who like, are under the delusion that like Trumpism is like a real appreciable like political program and not just the guy. Yeah. Like like this right. idea like oh, you know, oh, uh, Josh Holway is going to take up the mantle of like national conservatism and it's like no, that's like not anything. That's not like no one yeah. in America like no one's actually going to do that. No one actually like is fully articulating that um and also like no, they're just they're into this one guy very much. Yeah, and if the if the if the Republicans take power again, they're going to do what they've done and it'll be worse than what they did before, but that's just because times are shitty. Yeah. It's just going to be the eternal ratchet of history. It's not going to be because they're following uh Trump's like ideological uh model because that doesn't exist. Yeah, no, that that is, you know, all, all politics now or it's it's cargo cults but like especially yeah. trumpism oh my god yeah. like this guy in 2015 is like uh what, what if everyone could go to the doctor like in between 500 things about individual cable news shows and they're like oh, yeah. oh, that's it that's it. oh he invented national conservatism that's what we're doing and then like governs pretty much fucking identically to marco rubio and it's like no yeah. this is st- still a thing he's gonna come he's gonna do it again didn't even fucking well, didn't I, even give a second round of checks. That's how little of a fucking thing it is. Yeah, he barely fought for that because he was too concerned about Oprah being very mean yeah. to him. A second round of checks? When Pelosi sandbagged the the second check before the election that oh, might right, have right, secured right. him another term. He didn't give a shit. He didn't fight for it at all. No. No, he yeah, he just doesn't give a shit. But there's this like hilarious attempt to make it like a real intellectual thing. 
this uh, like some type of like hair invoke conservatism with like s- strong market controls that will literally never fucking exist in America. That was like when uh, was it like uh, is it Josh Hallway or one of those guys who are like going at Blackstone for buying up like every single family home in the country? Yeah, yeah, and just making every American like a renter for the next like for the foreseeable future. Uh, they were just like. And also, like, uh, because uh, Blackstone had some, like, corporate pride thing, and they were just like, this is woke capitalism. Like, the Democrats and the liberals are never going to reign in Blackstone. And, like, well, yeah, obviously, no, they're not. But fucking Josh Hallway isn't going yeah, no, to do it either. That's the beauty of it. Is yeah. that, <laughs> that BlackRock and those guys get to squeeze everybody uh, like fucking turnips, and then politics is, is whoever will spin you a narrative blaming someone somewhere, some amorphous group for the immiseration caused by that without ever addressing the actual thing because the su- the the su- uh, suggestion will be you can't get rid of this horrible evil without getting rid of this other f- group, this other uh, uh, opposing force, which it can't happen absent some sort of a, a collapse of democracy. And so uh, you could, until the th- wheels fall off, you'll just keep cranking up the misery and, and, then cranking up the rhetoric about who's responsible yeah, the, without ever without either side addressing the actual pain. the woke capitalism thing is genius like whoever came up with that because it's like it's a way of pointing at all this shit and like basically basically implying that like these companies will stop exploiting people like blackrock will stop owning all these houses blackstone will stop buying and strip mining companies and firing people if like they have Nick DiPaolo perform at their Christmas party, that's like the main idea. It's like they saw these well, people like getting disillusioned with this shit because of their lives versus their parents' lives, and they're like, "Oh, got it, yeah." And it's it's not even like a politically significant amount of people care about it, but it, it stymies even that because people are such shitty. They have such limited imaginations and such a shitty ability to think. And yeah, like, and I, also it's 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 why I think is like most of the thing that's animating this this sort of pseudo uh, Tea Party insurgence based around critical race theory is this idea of like you know corporate HR diversity seminars or whatever. And like, look, we've talked about that on the show. We've made fun of them. Uh, I, I'm I I think they're bullshit as well. But it's a way to brand like like that's what's wrong with capitalism. Like this is why everything yeah. sucks. Like this is why your employer has too much power over you is because they can make you go to these corporate diversity seminars, which is true. But like all these people, like they're not actually actually advocating like I don't know trade unionism or collective bargaining or or just like how about taking away the money of these rich or assholes. Or na- how about nationalize place. most of these things? Like yeah, yeah no not, no yeah. yeah there there's like I agree that that shit's stupid. That it's fucking silly but it's silly because it's like it's something that the people who like become the executives of those companies like because they went to college it's just like it's yeah. it's a like silly feature of it just like you know corporate retreats or any other like weird cultural thing built around like the 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 locus of capital in this country it's not like there's come to be this like way of thinking where it's like no they're like that's what makes them bad I mean, I think the existence of those, like, the HR culture, this new, like, corporate diversity stuff has, you know, probably something to do with the fact that, you know, more and more, like, uh, you know, uh, bodies and spaces types are working their ways into the heights of corporate power. But I think more than anything, it's just about covering their ass on an insurance and, like, you know, and, like, for, like, potential lawsuits or whatever. And, I think it's just yeah. a way of... And if you constantly have to keep making more money, the only way to do that is to, like, 
try to appeal to as much to as many people as possible and for as much noise people make about stuff where they're like oh i'm not gonna like watch nascar anymore because they like did a lap around the track for black lives matter it's like they still will it's like you're a pig you're not going to talk to your family you're not going to stop doing that and like the hope is maybe it brings new people on board if you if the form like the main thing with entertainment now is that everything has to hit the maximum amount of people that it can and you allow that most people are pigs and will watch it anyway that's the way you bring new people on or so they think who knows if it works or not, but that's like definitely the theory they're going after. Well, I mean, Felix, you said like the, the crony, the, sorry, the the woke capitalism thing is such a brilliant idea because it's such a simple one, and it's such a it's it's the same idea, and it's the one that's worked before. It's that like oh, you just invent these modifiers yeah. that you put in front of capitalism, like oh, that's crony capitalism, that's corporate capitalism. That's not true free market capitalism. Now it's woke capitalism. We're just like, no, it, it's all capitalism. Yeah, it's the same thing. That's, it's that's the same thing works. as Elizabeth Warren like saying, like, oh, we're doing the bad capitalism now, and my idea is like the good kind. It's the same thing. Yeah, exactly. It's just like that for people who like went to Vanderbilt instead of fucking uh Tufts. Yeah, and I I, I think there's a lot of similarities between this like uh you know, pseudo grassroots uh like anger and upswell. Like you've seen all these uh you know, uh, video footage of like, you know, school boards turning into like near riots and people having to be like dragged out screaming and they can't even get a meeting started because of how, how, how juiced up, uh, people are that are angry about, you know, critical race theory being taught in schools. And, you know, the contents of the curriculum aside, I mean, this just bears in every conceivable aspect from the people funding it to uh, the energy that, and like the, the reasons for it is a Democratic administration is in Washington, just like when Obama came into it. And then out of nowhere, there's seeming this like groundswell of conservative uh, protest and sort of populist uprising. And the Tea Party, it was against like the bailouts. And now it's for about critical race theory. And it's like they're absolutely going to ride this into this is the new Tea Party. And I think they're absolutely going to ride it into crushing in the midterms or if not crushing. I mean, this, this is it, it may not work for them, but this is their strategy. It's like crony capitalism becomes woke capitalism. Uh, uh, the Tea Party becomes, you know, this, this, you know, supposedly grassroots populist uh, upswell and resentment and anger about kids being taught to, you know, hate white people. But like this is going to be their strategy. It's an old one and it's one that in the past has worked very well for them for negating any of the advantage that a incoming Democratic administration will have. I mean, we'll, we'll see. I mean, I don't I don't know. I feel like, OK, for them to like take the house back in the midterms, they would have to you know what usually happens the same people who vote for them always vote and then like less democrats turn up and i think if you're like getting arrested at your kid's school board hearing you were already voting for republicans in the midterm this is like a thing that excites people that will like even the people who said like oh i'm never voting for a republican again because they didn't like fight hard enough for trump it's like yeah they'll end up voting for it they, they usually do um Remains to be seen uh, if uh, Democrats can juice the turnout midterms. It's definitely got their work cut out for them with the uh, voter suppression laws. Um, I'd imagine they might have a little trouble because the selling point with Biden is sort of antithetical to getting people to turn out. The selling point with Biden, the thing that people like about him is that they don't have to think about this shit. And voting in a midterm election definitely puts you in the category of someone thinking about shit. 
But I don't and know also, if it will, like, I don't know. I think it will, like, retain the people that they already depended on. I don't know how many new people this will juice. I just, I don't, I think this is a great thing for the base. I don't think it has, like, massive crossover appeal. But they don't need that for mid-term. Yeah, but I mean, well, between the, the tea party didn't really, yeah, no, the shit, you don't really no, need yeah, it. No, yeah, I was saying yeah. they don't need that for mid if I, if, I mean, a lot of it's going to come down to the economy. Like, are, is there going to be a boom? Is there going to be another drop? I mean, who knows? And and that is going to have a lot of determining. I'd say that if we're basically where we are now, like kind of treading water, uh, they'll win just because, yeah, all those people who stop, got to go back to brunch because Biden won are going to stay there. And all the people who are horrified by the Democrats doing what they do every fucking time when they take power and uh, reneging on any promise to pursue anything more uh, uh, ambitious than Bob Dole's 1996 platform are going to also uh stay home and then the 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 riled up uh crt opponents are gonna flood the polls and win yeah i mean i don't know if i don't know if it'll be as successful as the tea party i view it as basically the exact same strategy of um making the republican base and their anchor at, at living under what they regard as an illegitimate uh authority of a democratic president uh, they're going to channel it into what will be reported as a kind of genuine apolitical and uh, groundswell of anger. It's like a base motivation strategy, but it may work a little bit different. Or It remains to be seen how successful it is because with the bailouts and the Tea Party thing, like Obama was tied to that because he was the one who, who like, you know, did a lot of it. It was, you know, it was, it was his administration, whereas with Biden, it's harder to tie him to the kind of the, the woke CRT stuff because he's so obviously not that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you think I'm off. I mean, sometimes he like he'll start. He'll maybe try to use the language more and more, but like it always lands so like it's always so let in and and awkward. It's it's clear that like it, it's not a natural fit to him for him. I'm in one of those lymph node spaces, man. <laughs> I'm centering all, all right. types of things. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, let's let's leave it there for today. Uh, till next time, boys. Till next time. Bye. Bye bye.